Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Rambling Brews Podcast. This is episode 7. I am your host, Tim, and I hope everybody had a fabulous Valentine's Day holiday. Whether you were celebrating with your significant other, maybe having a romantic dinner, a nice bottle of wine, listening to the Rambling Brews Podcast to set the mood, or if you're single and you were just chilling at home, crushing beers, watching Netflix, and participating in some self-care activities, whatever it was, I hope you enjoyed the hell out of it. And man, this week has been bananas. Right now, half of the U.S., I think I saw it said 154 million people in the United States are under a weather advisory, just buried in snow and ice. So we're going to try our best to have a blast today. But first things always first. Rocky Mountain Cold, baby. We've got an absolutely packed episode this week including a great interview with my buddy JTL. We're trying new beers. We're talking mixed martial arts. We're talking boxing and professional wrestling, professional lacrosse and the premier lacrosse league, and just generally having a great time. I think everybody's going to enjoy that interview. Also, we had some controversial calls that were never before seen in the NHL. In my 30 years of living, I've never seen anything like this. I want to dive into that in the game between Carolina and Columbus. Uh, we've got to touch on the ridiculous story out of Canada that the Pittsburgh Penguins may trade Sidney Crosby this offseason. Spoiler alert, that will not happen, but we're going to dive into it. We'll take a look around the National Hockey League as well, some other interesting storylines and some stats. And this week also marks some interesting birthdays and anniversaries in the sports world, both amazing and tragic. But first, <laughs> before we start anything, I've got to mention that Adam Sandler and Shooter McGavin have won the internet this week. An unreal video of Adam Sandler acting as Happy Gilmore hit the internet of him just absolutely hitting a piss missile off the tee, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Happy Gilmore movie, and at the end, he called out Shooter McGavin. And then Shooter, shortly after, unbelievable, replies, the actor, I'm not even sure what the actor's name is, but the guy who plays Shooter McGavin, he'll forever be known as Shooter McGavin, replied shortly after Sandler posted that video, showing his skills in his house of him putting and why his motto still reigns true. You drive for show, but you putt for dough. <laughs> then he went into lines from the movie, telling Happy to meet him at the ninth green at nine uh, and dress nice. Just an absolutely electric uh, conversation between those two guys. It was absolutely awesome. I loved every second of it. Just made me smile today. So congrats to Adam Sandler and Shooter McGavin for winning the internet. If you haven't seen it, check it out anywhere online, really. I think Barstool Sports Instagram is where I saw it, but I'm sure uh, it's making its rounds. It was incredible, so check that out. Um, in, in the NHL this week, it's going to be an awesome event. The Outdoor Showcase is this upcoming weekend where the NHL goes outdoors at Lake Tahoe on Saturday. We've got Nathan McKinnon and the Colorado Avalanche taking on Mark Stone and the Vegas Golden Knights in a battle of the uh, West Division there, two West Division juggernauts. And on Sunday, we've got Patrice Bergeron and the Boston Bruins versus Claude Giroux and the Philadelphia Flyers. So should be some electric games. I mean, they're going to be unreal to watch. And, and no, for anybody thinking, they're not playing actually on Lake Tahoe. They're just playing at Lake Tahoe. So the lake and the mountains and everything will be in the backdrop. But it should be fun. It should be interesting. Uh, typically, I'm a little bit sick of these outdoor games. I mean, I think they've kind of run their course, right? Like, they've had so many of them. 
going back all the way. I mean, there were some games in the 90s that were outdoors, but but for this new era with the Winter Classic coming in in 2008 with the Penguins taking on the Buffalo Sabres and then every year having a Winter Classic on New Year's Day and then that um, that moved into having stadium series games where they would just have a couple regular season games outside in certain cities to try to get some more exposure uh, for other teams. But really, the one big thing on this is like it seems to always be the same teams. And I know people could laugh because I'm a Penguins fan, and it seems like the Penguins are, are in it a lot. They're in stadium series games or winter classics or what have you. Uh, but honestly, Boston and Philadelphia, I feel like every year they play outdoors. And maybe not against each other, but they're in outdoor games. But I understand the league goes with their big markets, and Philadelphia is one of their biggest markets. And, and Boston's an original six franchise, one of the original six teams to the NHL. So I understand it. They want to get the uh, the most exposure and the most eyes on the product. It's a shame this year that the NHL um, has, you know, with the quarantine and the Canadian teams not being able to travel, it would have been awesome to get, like, uh, a Lake Tahoe matchup outdoors with Austin Matthews versus Connor McDavid, the Leafs versus the Oilers or something like that. That would have been awesome for the hockey, um, the National Hockey League. So, you know, but but we'll we'll settle for this. I think it's going to be great. You know, my my philosophy on these, like I mentioned, they're a little bit played out to me. And honestly, because Sidney Crosby in 2011, as I mentioned before, he got his head taken off and it really altered uh, the trajectory of his career and just the the height of his career and his prime really altered that. So I'll, I'll never forgive the Winter Classic for that. I know it's not the Winter Classic's fault, but I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, again, the games are on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday, the Avalanche versus the Golden Knights. And Sunday, the Boston Bruins versus the Philadelphia Flyers. So definitely something to look forward to in this COVID season. Um, there hasn't been a lot to look forward to. I'm not really sure if they're going to have fans at the game or how that's going to work. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I'm not sure you know, what Utah's uh, COVID restrictions are and how the National Hockey League's playing that with all the COVID problems they have. But um, I can't wait to watch it. So, you know, if you guys want to tune in, I think it's going to be worth it. It'll definitely draw some eyes. I think it'll be on it definitely be on national TV. So it should draw some casual fans. So so hopefully that works out for the league. And this past week, me and the boys were playing some pond hockey here in the Berg. And honestly, there's nothing like it. Like it's an absolute blast. And one of the main reasons I wish Pittsburgh was in Minnesota or was like a Canadian city where you could do this all the time. I mean, no wonder these Canadian kids are just so nasty whenever they get older. They've been playing and even the kids in Minnesota. Minnesota. I mean, Minnesota is called the state of hockey. They get to just play on the thousands of lakes and ponds everywhere. They get to wake up in the morning, play some pond hockey, uh, go to school, come home from school, play pond hockey all night. It would just be a blast and electric. I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but where I grew up, high school hockey, I mean, you may you might get your parents and a few friends to go to the games, but in Minnesota, they legit sell out the NHL barn in Minneapolis for the high school state championships. Imagine being in high school playing hockey in front of, you know, 17, 18, 19,000 fans would be incredible, but I digress. Um, and other news in the NHL last week, as I mentioned in the intro, I wanted to talk about this um, as it happened a week or so ago, but Carolina versus Columbus had a ridiculous uh, bad look for the NHL. So for those who haven't seen it, Carolina entered the zone on a play that appeared to be offside. So for those who don't know, the puck has to cross the line first to get into the zone. Uh, a player is allowed to be in the zone, but he has to have at least one foot uh, either on the blue line or outside the zone. And this rule has changed in the past couple years where before the player had to have his back skate or the skate that's outside the zone or on the blue line had to be touching the actual ice surface. I mean, there was so many different rulings on that where a player's um, skate would be like a millimeter off the ice and they'd have to zoom in on the camera and they take a goal away on something that really had nothing to do with the play. It could have been from 
you know, 30, 40 seconds prior when the puck entered the zone to when the goal was actually scored. So they changed the rule this past year for this season um, and going forward where the blue line basically extends from the ice all the way up to the ceiling. So as long as you're uh, one of your legs is back behind the line or on the blue line, whether it's off the ice or not, doesn't matter. And that will be considered onside. But in this case, it was pretty blatantly offside. One of the Carolina Hurricanes had gone across the blue line first. Um, so Columbus challenged it. And that was a new rule they added a couple years ago. So you could challenge it. Um, if you're correct, the goal comes off the board, no harm, no foul. If you're incorrect and the play is actually onside, your team gets a delay a game penalty. So the other team could potentially score a power play goal. So it's a little bit of a risk. But uh, most of these guys, the video guys usually on top of it, the teams have a, a screen on the bench. Uh, most of the time it's on the floor. So you see if you're watching a game, you'll see the coaches whenever they're looking at a close play. The coaches are usually looking down at the ground. They're looking at a screen. They also wear a headset where the, the video coach is up in the press box and he's taking a look at it too. I know for the Penguins, Andy Saucier is one of the best in the business. Uh, they've had a couple big-time offside calls in the past couple years that have saved them in the playoffs and, and been integrals uh, to their uh, runs to the Stanley Cup, so super important. Um, but in this case, they reviewed it, and I'm not sure what happened actually like live, but it looked blatantly offside to me. And then they, they reviewed it, and it pretty quickly the, the referees came out to announce the verdict. So what they do normally is like if if they come out quickly, you know it's a pretty blatant. It's either offside or onside. I mean, if they're taking a while, they're not really sure. You know, that's when you know it's it's really, really close. But they came, came out pretty quick, and they came out and said, uh, the play is onside, the goal counts, and Columbus is charged with, um, you know, a delay a game penalty. So I'm like, what the hell? Like, there's no way that was onside. So anyway, um, John Tortorella, as you can expect on the Columbus bench, was not happy. He's talking to the officials. He's talking to the linesmen who are responsible for calling onside. Uh, sorry, calling offside. And he's a little bit unhappy, but, you know, understood. They, they're going to move on. So they get the penalty. So that not only did they give up the goal that shouldn't have counted, but now they have to kill the penalty. So that happened with about, I don't know, maybe a little over a minute in the second period. So the period ends and Carolina didn't score. So the power play will carry over to the third period. So during the intermission, I guess the league reviewed it and radioed down to the officials and the uh, the off-ice officials, the guys that sit in the box, the scorekeepers, things like that, and the on-ice officials, the referees and the linesmen, and let them know, hey, we made a mistake that actually was not a goal. Um so they come out, and when they come out at the end of the second period, you know they're they're coming back for the third after the intermission. You, the first thing you see on the broadcast is John Tortorella talking to the linesmen and the referees on the bench before any of the players have come back. Now this is not abnormal. Usually, when there's a close call or the coach is upset with how the referees are calling the game or whatever the case is, they'll call they'll have a conversation with the on ice officials to kind of just. What they try to do is they try to like either ream them out or they try to state their case in order to try to buy the next call or to explain to them, hey, I looked at the replay and the intermission, you were wrong, you know, we need a makeup call, whatever it is. It's all part of the game, right? But what does the referee do shortly after that? They come out, as soon as the teams get ready to start the third, they come out and they make an announcement. I've never seen this happen before. They come out and they say, we made a mistake, basically. The goal was actually offside. It shouldn't have counted. However... We already played a minute or so into that power play, and after that goal was allegedly scored or was counted, so they can't take the goal off the board, but to help Columbus, they'll take the penalty off the board, so they no longer have to kill the last 52 seconds or 52-some-odd seconds, however many there were, right around that. Is that not the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? So the goal didn't count. It shouldn't have counted, but it did count, I should say. 
it was offside. And when you see the replays, it was blatant. Um, I'll try to find a good good uh, view of it on Twitter in a clip and post it out at Rambling Brews. But if you haven't seen it, just look it up. I'm sure you can YouTube it. It's incredibly dumb how offside, how blatantly offside this play was. But not only does the NHL come out. Now, normally you don't see a league come out and admit they made a mistake in the middle of the game. Normally after the game, the NHL or whatever league it is will put out a statement and say, hey, we missed this call. We apologize to the teams involved, blah, 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 whatever it is, right? But no, they come out in the middle of the game and they say, we made a mistake. This goal should not have counted. However, we've already played a little bit, so uh, tough shit, Columbus. So what they should have done is they should have said, hey, we made a mistake like they did. We're going to go back. I know we've already cut the ice. We're getting ready for the third. Well, we're going to go back. We're going to take the goal off the board. We're going to take the penalty off the board. We're going to start right when that uh, offside play happened as far as the time goes. So whether there was a little over a minute or what have you on the clock and play from there all the way to the end of the second, blow the horn, switch sides, whatever, and then start the third like that. That would have been the fair thing to do. So it just made no sense to me. And wouldn't you know who won the pony? The Columbus Blue Jackets lost the game by one goal, six to five. Unbelievable. So, like, I mean, you got to be kidding me. I would be irate if I'm uh, John Tortorella. He's already short fuse, as we've talked about on previous episodes. But this guy, he had to be just so pissed. And I'm sure he called the league. And Patrick Line came out after the game. Uh, we've talked about Line a lot. He's a stud superstar. He came out and basically said, that was a fucking joke. I'm sure he'll be getting a call from the league, but sometimes those things have to be said. Just incredible. I've never seen anything like that in sports, um, in hockey especially, where a call was so blatantly wrong and then they just do nothing to fix it. And it cost the team two points in a short, condensed season, which could be the, the be them making the playoffs or them not making the playoffs. So I'd be irate if I'm a Blue Jackets fan. I know they all are. And, and a Blue Jackets uh, player or coach or anybody in the organization. I'm sure they're pissed, so they're, they're hoping the NHL owes them one. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. And I mentioned uh, Patrick Line, so he's fitting in real well in Columbus. You know, I, I it's it's crazy because last episode I was talking about how it looked like he was almost on his way out already. He was already benched. He had a spout with the assistant coach, but he came out after that, um, subsequent to when we had this episode, and he said, "Hey, you know, I, I'm buying in. I understand I was wrong. Um, I'm all f- here for the team. I'm here for my teammates. You know, all that kind of stuff. All the things you want to hear your stud star say." and the other night against the Blackhawks, Jack Roslovic. So this guy also came over with Line, as we've mentioned in the Pierre-Luc Dubois trade to Columbus. He's a hometown kid, just lighting it up so far, um, just really playing well. Um, he had a he, he got hit by a, a Kyle Hagel of the Blackhawks, and sure shit, Line didn't like the hit. And what does he do? He just jumps him, starts fighting him. Now, granted. I wouldn't judge his fight. He's not an actual fighter, as we've mentioned, but I mean, he got his wheels, he got the wheels beaten off him. Like he, he got dropped pretty quickly, but just him standing up, that's all that mattered to his team. I mean, you're getting big points from your teammates and fitting in with the coaching staff. Um, you know, it appears he's bought in now to towards the system. He understands why he was benched, as I mentioned, and, and sticking up for your teammates as a star can go a long way. I'm sure the organization doesn't like to see it. Because you don't want your star player, your your pure sniper, goal scorer, stud, uh, breaking his hand or something in a fight. But to stand up for a teammate like that, I mean, I, if I was on his team, I'd be ready to run through a wall. So I can tell you right now in that dressing room, the boys are fired up. And speaking of fighting, this is a perfect segue, perfect time to send it over to my boy JTL, the Rambling Brews MMA expert. I think you guys are going to love this interview. Enjoy it. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a long time coming for this interview. I'm hyped up for it. We are now joined by one of my best friends on the planet. This guy and I lit up the Western Pennsylvania Scholastic Lacrosse Association for the Trinity Hillers back in the day. A couple all-star appearances and some Steel City Select invitations. Humble brag. Also, he was the executive producer of two of my Royal Navy hip-hop mixtapes. What a time that was. He was in my wedding. I was in his wedding. He's the biggest Boondock Saints movie fan there ever will be. And currently, he's saving the world one court case at a time as he is a trial counsel prosecutor with the U.S. Army. Just a mini Johnny Cochran in the works. My broski, JTL. What's going on, boss? Oh, dude, I love it. I love that intro. (laughs) I'm going to have to have you follow me around and just yell that out every time I walk into a room. I I don't want to be that guy that's like, you know, living in the past, peaking in high school. But, man, we did. We lit it up. Hey, I have no problem saying I peaked in high school, man. It's, it's, <laughs> it's no big deal. But uh, thanks for joining, man. It's, this is going to be fun. I think this is going to be a blast. The listeners are going to enjoy it. Um, I guess the obligatory question I always ask is, um, you know, what are you sipping on over there? I, I know we talked about this a little bit before. We might do a little uh, combined beer tasting here since we're both not beer snob IPA drinkers. So what so, uh, what beer you got I'm over the, there? I'm the complete opposite of a beer snob. And to tell you the truth, I got a shaker bottle full of water and some orange Mio in it. But for oh, your <laughs> for your show and you know keeping true to form, I went out and I got a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, and I can tell just by the can that I'm gonna hate it. It just looks <laughs> terrible. It is fun. So I have to tell a quick story about buying this. So I I knew I wasn't gonna like it. I can already I I don't want to judge it, but I know I'm not gonna like it. But it is negative four degrees and snowing in Kansas City. So I went to the store. I have a beanie on, a dirty hoodie that's got like spaghetti stains on it, uh, like an over (laughs) a 6XL (laughs) Nike winter coat. And I walk in and I grab one pale ale pounder (laughs) for $1.69 at the gas station looking like, oh, man, they probably like were looking at me thinking this guy's having a rough day. But dude, it's so funny you say that I I went to the store to buy the uh, the beer I have here. It's a Dale's pale ale um, and I wanted to buy just one can. Right. So I was like. I, I walked in, same thing. I had shorts on, a hoodie, like a beanie, and I had LL Bean boots with white Nike high socks and shorts. <laughs> and like, these people were looking at me like I was just some homeless person coming in to get one beer. And uh, that's how I felt. But, hey, I didn't want to buy a whole case of Dale's Pale Ale. So, yeah. We'll I mean, drinking the Pale Ale, I mean, that's probably how all those hipsters dress anyway. So they probably thought I was a normal customer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm looking at this here. It's the Oscar Blues Brewery. Uh, this is a pint actually it's six and a half percent alcohol so i'm gonna give this a crack and see how it goes and what what's the alcohol percentage on yours mine is uh 5.6 oh, okay all right well i'm gonna crack it and give it a taste and then we'll score it one to five on the uh the rambling brews beer uh, scale all right i'm gonna crack mine. you ready for the, the sound bite here <laughs> let's go oh god oh it's actually not terrible it's not too bad, actually. I can't really tell what the flavor is. Let me take another sip. This one's bitter. It's that's not bad. The, that's the IPA. I mean, yeah, it kind of tastes like a like a skunk blue moon. But here, here's the thing: to all the <laughs> the rambling brews viewers out there, I'm not a big drinker, and when I do drink, if it's beer, I drink Miller Lite or Yingling, and if I drink liquor i drink jameson and now recently i've been in jameson black label so if i go to a party if i go to a bar if i go anywhere 
And I say, hey, do you have Miller Lite? They say, no, we have whatever they're, whatever they have. I just won't drink. I don't look for alternatives. I just, that's my thing. I'll just have a, a water or a Diet Coke or something. I can respect so, that. So this, <laughs> this review, you have to understand, is coming from that palate, right? I don't know <laughs> what an IPA is supposed to taste like or what a good beer tastes like, but I will say I can stomach this. I can get it down. I think I can drink this and, and be okay. So I guess that makes means it's good. I don't know. It's a little bitter, so if you're not into that, don't drink it. I don't it's, it's your, all right. What's your score? What's your score out of five stars? Oh, uh, so judging this as putting myself in the mind of somebody who wears, you know, a Carhartt <laughs> beanie when it's 60 degrees outside or <laughs> boat shoes with no socks, I would say that that individual will probably score this maybe a three, six. All right. All so, right. 3.6. Pretty solid. Uh, I'm not sure Sierra Nevada wants you running their marketing campaign. She <laughs> said it was it tastes like a skunked blue moon, but I, that's what all these these craft beers they all taste like that to me. They taste like someone took like the dirty water out of a mop bucket and put orange rinds in it, and they're like, "Oh, it's our here's our craft beer." I guess what it that, all tastes like to me. Yeah, they have that really bitter. I said that on the last episode. Like they have that really bitter um, aftertaste. Like a lot of times it's like a decent front end taste because you get the fruits and everything. Uh, but it has this like a bitter taste. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I I understand what you're saying. You can stomach it, and I respect that you don't go with the, uh, you know, a different option. I don't know too many bars that wouldn't have Miller Lite, uh, but like it would be crazy to me if they didn't. But here, I'll, I'll take another sip and score mine. Yeah, this isn't bad. I I think it's probably the best of the um, beers I've tried so far. I'd say it's. Uh, I'm gonna go with the three point eight five. Ooh. So this is pretty good. I would actually drink this. Like if somebody else offered me this, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. I've had that. Again, I wouldn't order it, but. What's ironic about doing this now is that you started episode one and you're like, this Coors Light, get all this nonsense out of my face. You talk to our buddy John. He suggests trying a new beer. And by the end of it, I mean, episode 12, you're going to be a a craft beer snob. (laughs) No, no way. (laughs) No way. I can't. I can't ever get. I got to stick with what brought me here, man. The Coors Light. Uh, Big Tim, my dad would be disappointed if I was not drinking Coors Light. And, um, you know, again, I just wanted to expand my horizons a little bit. I think some people think that I just hate I always I made the rant that I hate how people just turn their nose up at people that just like domestic beer. So and then I was like, well, wait a minute, let me just try these and give my honest opinion. I'm not trying to do this for like laughs and stuff. It's just what I my my score is my score. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But I'm going to try a bunch of different IPAs. There's so many of them. That's that's the big thing. The beer snobs are the worst, and like that's why I kind of have an aversion to craft beer, because I go out somewhere, we'll go to one of these breweries that's got, you know, exposed brick and Edison bulbs everywhere, and <laughs> I walk up and I say, I'm standing in line, and this happens every time, and I and this is why I just hate craft beers because I go up, there's somebody in front of me, and they ask for whatever's on tap, and they get some beer that's been brewed by Syrian monks and then distilled at sea for what well, I guess you don't <laughs> distill beer but you know what I mean and then it's got whatever spack story right. I sit there I listen to all that I don't care you can get what you want and then I step up and I say hey do you have Miller Lite or something similar and then instantly whoever that dork is that just ordered his beer is like oh why don't you just drink piss oh you don't want to drink good beer it's like they this they get personally attacked by me ordering something different it's like that's why I can't stand it it's just, yeah, I, I understand that too, and I can see why like people might throw it back at us and say like, "Well, you're judging us for well, no, we're not." Like you, you just said, and I agree with you. You can get whatever you want, but 
don't look at me sideways because I'm ordering, you know, just a regular beer. I, I, I don't, I just, I don't ever understand how that whole process works and how people are just so, and I agree with you hundred percent that like, I almost feel the same way that I don't like craft beer just because it's a lot of the people and the way they act that do like craft beer and that's all they drink and they're all about it and they're anti-establishment, anti Anheuser-Busch and anti Molson and all those big companies. And John and I talked about this on an earlier episode where a lot of the times, like I don't know for sure, but Dale's Pale Ale or maybe even Sierra Nevada, I'm sure there's a big conglomerate company that owns these craft beer, um, you know, these craft beers and then they brew them themselves and they make the money off it so you're really supporting these big conglomerate companies but <laughs> we could probably talk about that all day we'll move <laughs> on um i wanted to start with something i know you're passionate about um mixed martial arts and mainly the yeah. ufc so um i've i've been watching a ton of documentaries recently on dana white i gotta say that guy's the fucking man like I, I always thought he was just some meathead, just jabroni that just like locked into having this big company and it's now a big success. But I didn't really know his story about him growing up in Boston and, and how he had boxing gyms and like he combined boxing with aerobics. And uh, he had a bunch of run ins with like the Boston mob with like mm-hmm. Whitey Bulger yep. and Kevin Weeks and those guys. Um, those guys were insane. If you you watch any documentaries or read about the, the Boston mob at that time. Um, and I guess it was like funny because Dana white, I guess allegedly owed them money or like $2,500 and he just fled town. So he just like moved to Vegas and, um, it just so happened that two of his uh, high school friends or, um, the, The what for Tita brothers. Yeah. Yeah. So Lorenzo and Frank, um, he ran into them and they were running like their, their dad's casinos out there and taking over their dad's casino business. And they ended up just a long story short, ended up buying the UFC for $2 million in 2001, which is insane. The rest is history. So like, what do you make of the the UFC and how mainstream that and martial arts has become? So one quick thing about Dan White. So you said that like you know you thought that he just like fell into you know this just dumb luck, and a lot of people think that because he was friends with the Fertitta brothers and they had all this money and they kind of backed him. But the real story about that is he he just went up to them and approached them with this business idea, right? So he he tricked them first into giving him the money in order to buy the UFC and then to market it. And for the first couple of years, like it was, they were doing bad. If it wasn't for the series finale of the ultimate fighter one, the UFC probably would have never been a thing. And that's really, uh, yeah. So they, when Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner fought in the season finale, it was on spike TV. It was a live event and it was a war that that's one of the greatest fights in UFC history. And they say it's probably the greatest fight because it saved the company. But the, I don't know how TV ratings work. I honestly don't, but the trajectory of it, they ended with over, I think it was like a couple million more viewers than they started. So what that trend means is that people were watching it and then either calling or texting or whatever they were doing, other individuals that they knew to tune in and watch it. So it, it ended up growing the sport and everyone thinks that it was this huge, you know, just barbaric and no holds barred kind of fighting. But from watching that, it, it really people got to understand that it, at least I, I like to pretend that it was more than that. But back to your question, it's, it's really interesting to see just the growth of it for just the casual fan, you know, like the guy at Buffalo Wild Wings, who's going to sit there and watch every fight. Cause growing up early two thousands, mid two thousands, when, you know, when you would come over to my house and we would watch Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture fight. Right. That was once a month they would have an event. Now it's, Every week, there's a different fight night. There's a pay-per-view. It's, it it kind of 
feels like it's saturated, but there's so much high level talent coming out now based on the, or because of the UFC boom. So you had originally people from different backgrounds of boxing, shoot boxing, karate, jujitsu, wrestling, and they all came together to see which was the top. But now you have these kids who grew up training specific mixed martial arts, right? So they don't have a one background and they're just, some of the people that are coming up now, man, they're just, they're incredible. And I mean, I even say that in the UFC, but if you go to a, a regional fight, you know, you go just to your local MMA gym, there's guys there that are just killers, man. They're just absolute savages. Right. And you see that like the success of UFC. I think that has a lot to do with it. Like you can uh, piggyback that over to like hockey here in the Pittsburgh area where now there's so many big guys that are potentially going to the NHL. And there's a lot of guys in the NHL now from this area based on the success in um, in Pittsburgh with hockey. So if you look at UFC, like how big it's gotten and people have gotten more into it and they've watched it their whole lives growing up. And then you're going to have a, a much bigger talent pool. That's one thing like you said about it being a little oversaturated. I always thought when we were younger that they were smart uh, because they only had like one pay-per-view every month or every six weeks or however long it was Um, because WWE, like their competitor, I guess, in terms of pay-per-view buys and and things like that and entertainment, they had so many pay-per-views that it almost was like, why am I buying all these pay-per-views? But now, like you said, it's different. I mean, they have so many different um, talents. They have so many different weight classes. Like, I don't really follow UFC all that much, but I I was always like a boxing fan um, for the most part, and I think a lot of people were initially because boxing is like more technical and stuff like that. But like, it just seems like UFC is completely blown by boxing. Like, and not, they're not even in the rear view anymore. It's in terms of combat sports and the popularity in the United States and globally, it's not even close unless there's like a Mayweather fight. But other than that, you know, the UFC is the cream of the crop in terms of, in terms of combat sports in the United States and worldwide. Yeah. And like, that's the thing. Like, I don't want to say, I don't want to be that guy that says like boxing's dead, you know, cause if there's a boxing match, I'll watch it. But when you just look at the casual fan, Somebody who's sitting around on a Friday or Saturday night flipping through the channels, most likely they're not going to stop on a boxing match, you know, but they will watch UFC. I, you know, everyone knows Floyd Mayweather, Triple G, Canelo, uh, Ryan Garcia, like those are Tyson Fury, those few boxers. But besides that, probably can't name anymore, right? And if they're not going to fight, if they're not boxing, you're probably not going to watch it, right? But with the UFC, the way, I mean, they've just... They've, they've taken a, a monopoly over the sport, basically. So the only real competitor they have is Bellator. And it's interesting because a lot of high-level guys from the UFC have transitioned over to Bellator, but UFC is still the king, right? And they're probably going to be the king for the foreseeable future. It's going to be interesting to see what happens now that uh, Khabib's gone. McGre- who knows when McGregor's going to fight again, who he's going to fight, when he's going to fight. GSP's gone. Uh Anderson Silva's out, so you don't really have these that next star. Like yeah, it's like next guy to carry the. Yeah, it's hard because it's weird. You have to think of it from the just the casual fan standpoint, right? Everybody wants to go and watch McGregor and fly the Irish flag, and you know who the fuck is that guy and quote him and all that kind of stuff. But (laughs) like that's with his last fight, everyone's all shocked that you know Connor lost, and you know what's he going to do? How's he going to bounce back? But Dustin Poirier is not a scrub. Like, this guy has been a high-level competitor for years. And he didn't take any time off. Like, McGregor was out of the octagon for three or four years, right? After that Mayweather fight, and he was running around doing whatever, trying to, you know, start a movie career. And then he's got uh, Proper 12 
uh, whiskey. So he, I don't want to say he was distracted because I don't think that's what happened, right? I mean, obviously the more reps you get, more comfortable you're going to be, the better you're going to perform. But it wasn't like they just threw him in there with some tomato can, some nobody. Poirier is a beast. And I, and if people want to know about Dustin Poirier, there is a documentary on Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime. It's called Fightville. And it's about him growing up fighting in Louisiana. And this kid, even when he was a teenager, was just an absolute, just savage, just a beast. So it's going to be interesting to see who they're going to hype up. Like Kamaru Usman, who just fought on Saturday, had a really impressive performance. And he's got 13 wins. And he's got some crazy stats we can get into later. But he's he's an up-and-coming star. And he's somebody that I think the UFC can put a lot of stock into. Sugar Shane O'Malley is another one because he's just flamboyant. It's just people need you need to move the needle right and that's one of the problems that the UFC has is that they are oversaturated in the fact that they have so many events and then so many fighters and when you look at it from a pure com- combat sports and competitor standpoint they're all high level guys but that's not what's going to pay the bills you need to have the casual fans tune in pay that $60 for that pay-per-view so how are we going to do that right so you need somebody who moves the needle and that's why Conor McGregor was so great he's a, a talented fighter, don't get me wrong, but he understands how to market himself. Right? Yeah, he's, he a, stole he's a promo whole, king. He, he he's yeah. like he's like a WWE wrestler, but obviously he's you know he's a real fighter, so he knows exactly how. Like people tune in to see him. People that hate him tune him tune in to see him get his head knocked off, and people that love him tune in to see him win and then just talk shit. Like that, you know, that's it's interesting because I, I wanted to talk about McGregor and like where you think he ranks in terms of the best. Um, UFC and martial artists of all time because I, I don't know a lot about UFC as you know I've just admitted but it seems like a, a lot of people think he's the best or or up there in the, the upper echelon but you see that a lot in different sports where like he's just the most vocal and the most visible he's all he's out there he's wearing Gucci minks and he's riding in uh, Rolls Roy- drop top Rolls Royces and stuff like that so you, I'm not sure he's technically the best fighter in terms of his technical skill and his jujitsu and all that but I just wondered from like your perspective, you know, where you would rank McGregor in terms of the best fighters ever and who else would be up in that upper echelon Mount Rushmore type? So, I mean, if we're talking just strictly UFC, I mean, it all depends. There's a lot of factors that go into it. So there's people like I wouldn't rank these individuals in my top, but there are people that are worth mentioning. So you have like Ronda Rousey, right? She's really not the greatest fighter and and she's been exposed and everybody saw that on national TV or I guess national TV and all over social media that she she didn't have the skills that everyone thought she did, but she was an absolute pioneer for women in MMA, right? So you have to give her respect for that. Then you got Hoist Gracie, who won the first three UFCs and showed everyone that you didn't need to be the biggest guy or the strongest guy, and he's in there rolling around with people, choking him out in his pajamas, you know. So he's definitely a pioneer, someone that's you know gives his respect, but when it comes to an actual mixed martial artist, he couldn't he couldn't back up in other skills, right? So he wasn't a kickboxer, he wasn't a boxer. Uh, he had good takedowns from his jujitsu, but he wouldn't classify as a wrestler. So I kind of put Conor McGregor in the same category as that. When you're talking about people who are noteworthy in the sport, right? McGregor deserves to be up there, right? Because he definitely brought in a different fan base. He was from a different, I mean, to the extent you want to say that being Irish and from Ireland is a different culture, he brought that that fan base in, he brought those individuals in, 
promoted MMA in that country. And then he also was able to do other things. And what I will always say about Conor McGregor is that he's a, a risk taker, right? Right. He went out of his comfort zone and he fought Floyd Mayweather. He bumped up in a weight class and fought Nick Diaz. He didn't run from Khabib. I mean, he didn't win that fight, but he fought him. He fought Poirier. Like, he'll he'll take the fights. He'll do what he needs to do. Sometimes he doesn't come out on top, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles. You know what I mean? It, it went, Sometimes it's your night, sometimes it's not. We saw him in 13 seconds just body Jose Aldo, who at the time was probably one of the pound-for-pound pound best fighters. So he has the skill to back it up, but he also has some flaws, right? And it's yeah. just that maybe that he's distracted in other areas. But he, you have to, you'd have to note him when you're talking about just people who have grown the sports. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of best fighters of all time, like my top five, I wouldn't put Conor McGregor in that. Yeah, and I understood. I mean, like, I don't know if you would consider yourself, but I probably would consider you like a, a UFC like purist almost. Like, you're you're more and you, and you do the jujitsu, and like we'll get into that in a little bit. Like as far as the gym work, but. You understand what goes into it, but like the casual fan, I could see why a casual fan would say, "Yeah, McGregor's got to be up there." I mean, he he elevated the sport to where it is now. I mean, I'm not saying he's the sole reason that it's elevated to where it is, but he's a big reason why in the last few years that he was the one guy that was able to get a fight with Floyd Mayweather. And the one thing you said that was always a knock on Mayweather in boxing was that a lot of people always thought he ducked a lot of fights or he waited till guys were out of their prime. Look at. Um, you know, his fight with Oscar De La Hoya. Well, I mean, so he like, fought Manny Pacquiao six years too late. Yeah, exactly. So, like, they really missed the boat on that. And I'm a big Mayweather guy, and I think he's the best boxer, one of the best boxers for sure all the time. He's undefeated. But, like, um, that was one of the knocks on him was that he, w- he would always duck, and that's what I always respected about Conor McGregor is, like, even – I mean, he you saw the last fight he just lost to Poirier, like you mentioned. I mean, he he took his loss, and he, he moved on. He You know, he ran his mouth. He runs his mouth all the time, but he takes his lickings, and if he – he um, gets beat up or gets knocked out or he loses by however he loses unanimous decision doesn't matter mm-hmm. he you know he licks his wounds and moves on and he keeps going and I could see why he's maybe a little bit distracted because he made a couple hundred million dollars off the Mayweather fight um, he's like a mainstream celebrity almost now yep. in terms of boxing so like you know why is he I, I was just surprised that he still wants to go back I don't I'm, I'm not talking about the contracts and all that I'm sure he has contract obligations to go back to UFC and things like that but it seems like I'm not sure why he would want to go back and put himself through that because that's like one one question I wanted to ask you is like do you think the, the last fight he just had with Dustin Poirier and then going forward I think he has a couple more fights scheduled here in the coming years but do you think he might damage his legacy by continuing to fight and if he if he ends up losing those fights um, I'm not sure how that would work like in the UFC because it, it's not like he was ever undefeated mm-hmm. like even when he was at the height of his popularity he's he had a couple losses on his belt but. Like, do you think he's potentially damaging his legacy in, in the sport of uh, martial arts? I mean, so it's always a potential, right? But you got to see what the future holds. But I think what protects McGregor, and it's just like you said, he doesn't duck anyone, and then he takes his licks, and he owns up to it. Like, one of my favorite things, and I'm not necessarily a Conor McGregor fan at all, but one of my favorite things he ever did is that when he jumped up and he fought Diaz, when he got beat, it was kind of a shock, right? Uh I, I never count out the Diaz brothers because they're all they're just absolute yeah they're savages like, they just they're brawlers right and the more that you pressure them the more that you hurt them the more bloody they are that's when they they fight back the most and that's what they're used to but 
whenever he lost, he posted uh, a thing on his Instagram where it's him leaving the arena in a suit and he's doing that strut that he does. And he's like, look, I came up, I took a chance, wasn't my night, whatever, I'll be back. And like, he didn't make any excuses. He didn't do anything. He just, right. you know, but the thing- You gotta respect that. that. You gotta respect that. Yeah, but sure. the thing that makes me a little concerned about what his future is gonna be is that's how he acted after the Diaz fight. After the Khabib fight, he- you know, pretended he, I mean, he acknowledged it, but then he moved on and was doing other things, focusing on other businesses. But he always came back to that same trash talk, that same hype man mentality. Right. After the Poirier fight, in the post-fight interview, he was so humbled. Because that's the first time, uh, he's lost before, but that was the first time he's ever been actually knocked out like that. Right. Just wobbled on his feet. So it was something new that he has to learn, but he's already 15 years into his fight career, you know. So yeah, I was be shocked interesting by that. to see. I was shocked at like he was he was like hugging him and then I saw um pictures and videos after the fight where like they were hanging out in the back like after they had gotten showered and all that after the fight and they were, you know, and and he posted like some things like hey, he's a great fighter and he's been talking like normally you'd see McGregor like ah, it wasn't my night, you know, mm-hmm. fuck that guy, blah 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 blah, I'll be back, I'll kick his ass, let's fight again, something like that. So it's almost like he he turned a page in his maturity a little bit. Um, but we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I think maybe maybe that's like a part of his edge that he might lose. You know, that's yeah. my thing is like his edge is that he's so cocky and he can back it up. And like you said, even if he loses, he moves on. But he's still that same guy. He's got and that it, same personality. That yeah, he that's always how, just wants that's to how he going. sucks you in. Right. So like right. even when he loses, he tricks you into like being on his side and into cheering for him and rooting for him. So the concern is if you build yourself up into that uh, persona, and if that loses, are the same fans going to now have your back if you go out and you get rocked again, right? right. So you want to talk about his legacy? You can never take, but you can never take away what he's already accomplished. So we got to look at moving forward. I don't think Khabib's going to come back, so he's probably not going to have that fight. So he's looking at maybe fighting Dan Hooker, Michael Chandler, one of those guys who are also top level caliber people, right? So. He's going to come back, and he's going to have to have a very tough fight with a, a top four, top five individual, right? We don't know right. if he's going to get an automatic rematch with uh, Dustin Poirier, what's going to happen with that, who's next in line. But if he bounces back and he uses what has made him successful, then people are going to still have the support for him. And if you ask somebody, hey, where's Conor McGregor rank in your top, or how do you feel about him, they'll still have that respect on his name. But if he just starts getting just manhandled and then doesn't know how to react well to it people like it's it's with any sport right as soon as you start to struggle if you don't bounce back well from it people are going to turn on you instantly right and if he doesn't have that support we'll see what happens i don't think that's going to happen i think he's done enough that his legacy just as a pioneer and somebody who is synonymous with the ufc right it's going to be one of those things even if you don't put him in your top five when you think of the ufc you're going to think of conor mcgregor Right. I think that he he did enough that he's branched out, he's taken risks, he's taken chances, he's a fan favorite, he kept the organization afloat for a long time. And he has some caliber wins. He was he's the first ever champ champ, right? He he was the one uh two division title holder. People are gonna love that. And you can't ever take that away from him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said and um you know, I, I respected the hell out of him moving up to, to fight Mayweather. And another thing I wanted to talk to you about is very similar is um, intermixing the boxing versus the martial arts in the UFC world. So you see Jake Paul, the YouTube guy. Um, he's fighting, I think, Ben Askren is his name coming up here in April. 
Um, and obviously Jake Paul rocked Nate Robinson. I mean, I don't think anybody, I mean, I guess he's a YouTuber. So maybe people thought like, Oh, if Nate Robinson had a chance, but Nate Robinson had no training whatsoever. You, if you watched that fight, you knew that Jake Paul, if you followed him at all, he's actually had some training. He's been training the last couple of years. He's fought a few amateur fights and a few pro fights. So I figured he was probably going to win. I didn't think he would win that bad, but now he's getting into the ring with a guy, Ben Askren, who, from everything I've read and everything I've heard, he he's a pretty good fighter, and I don't I don't know if maybe Jake bit off more than he could chew, but I'm just you know interested to see how that'll play out, and I guess I wanted to see like what you what you make of Jake Paul's comment about boxers versus martial artists, where he's saying boxing is is so technical, like I mentioned before, like it's almost like a sport, it's a legit sport, and I'm not saying UFC and martial arts isn't, but martial arts and UFC is more of a war, like these guys that. Are, like martial artists have to train and I've always had this conversation with you in the past, but they they have to train wrestling. They have to train jujitsu. They've got to train ground game. They've got to train boxing. They got to train kickboxing. Whereas a boxer, all they have to focus on is one aspect of the sport, one aspect of combat sports. And that's like fists and body shots and headshots and things like that. Jabs, hooks, uppercuts, whatever the case is. So I wonder like, what do you think of that? Do you think that that's still remains true that, you know, it's going to be, very difficult for a, a top martial artist to go into the boxing world and get a win. It doesn't matter who he's fighting against. If that, if it's just boxing rules and he's fighting a guy that only trains boxing. Yeah. So a lot to unpack on that. We'll get to it, but just the first thing about his comment, right? So boxing in itself is, you know, it's a sweet science and it's a chess match, but so is every single martial art and every combat sport. But when you're on your feet with someone and you're boxing, you're worried about footwork and angles and pressure and, you know, slips and punches and all that, all that kind of stuff, right? But you have to worry about the same things if you're wrestling, if you're grappling, if you're doing judo, if you're kickboxing. So to say that boxing is the only thing that focuses on that is just incorrect, number one. But jujitsu is the same way, right? If you're on the ground with somebody, you have to either react, counter-react, defend yourself, depending on what you do or what the person does to you. So there's a quote by Henry Gracie that says, I don't pick how I win jujitsu, they pick how they lose. And that's what it means. So when you make a mistake, you fall right into that trap. So you have to be conscious of that. It's a, it's a chess match. Every single combat sport is just comparable to a chess match, right? Every time you make a move, it's either going to be a beneficial move or it's going to be detrimental to your progress, right? So Boxers love to say that. And here's the thing. I, I grew up boxing and I have a lot of respect for boxers. I don't mean this disparagingly at all, but they love to say that because they know that their sport is dying in a sense. And I know I didn't want to say that earlier, but I'll say it anyway. So it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not keeping up, right? So they want to say, don't watch the UFC. That's just a street fight. That's just a bar fight. That's not, this is technical. This is skill. It's the same thing. If you're on your feet in a boxing match or you're on your feet in a mixed martial arts match you still have to be conscious of what the other person's doing what you're doing but in mixed martial arts you have to worry about being in a clinch and kicks elbows knees there's so many different things that are happening at one time so to say right. that you know it doesn't affect it, it's that's nonsense but yeah and i've always had that i've always had that thought uh, based on like what you were just talking about and we've had this conversation before and like where I've always said that I think, um, you know, boxing, boxing versus UFC, like the boxer is always going to win because it's in a boxing match. But like, mm. are, do you ever think you'll see a time where like a boxer, like I'm not saying Mayweather, but for the sake of the argument, a, a guy like that or a guy like Jake Paul, it always seems like the UFC 
or the martial artist has to go to their world. Do you ever think mm. that there'll be a time that you know a, a boxer will say, "Hey, I'll take a I'll take a fight with a UFC fighter." I mean, I think they would get absolutely dummied in the UFC. Yeah, fight. It, it actually happened. Uh, James Tooney fought Randy Couture, and he got knocked oh, yeah. out in like I think it was a minute and a half or something like that. But so anytime, and it's the same thing with like CM Punk. CM Punk comes over and he got Mickey Gall just decimated him. No, it wasn't even a wasn't even comparable. Comes out, throws this just weak, soft ass left hook, and uh, Mickey Gall takes him down. He has no idea what to do. So thinking that you can come from one discipline and then compete in mixed martial arts is just silly, right? Because you can be a world class like Floyd Mayweather if he fought Conor McGregor in mixed martial arts. Floyd Mayweather is probably considered and probably is the best boxer. He's definitely the the best defensive boxer of all time. I'll give him that. But he gets taken to the ground. He doesn't know what he's going to do. So James Tooney came over. And I'll admit James Tooney wasn't at the peak of his athletic ability or in his prime. But nevertheless, it it just shows what happens when you don't know what's going on. But Jake Paul, he – so as somebody who trains – in combat sports and has competed in combat sports, I have a baseline respect for anybody who gets in the cage, gets in the ring, steps on the mat, whatever it is, to have that mentality, to go out and put yourself on the line like that, I automatically respect you. And Jake Paul is a YouTuber, that's his job, but he does train, he does put in the work, he takes it serious, right? So, uh, you know, Rich Franklin, who was a middleweight champion, before he became that, he was a an English teacher, a high school English teacher. So to say that he's a YouTuber and somehow that takes it away, I don't buy into that because he does put in the work. But he's made a excellent decision with Ben Askren, but also at the same time a grave mistake. So Ben Askren is a Olympic-level wrestler, right? He's a great grappler, great wrestler, and he had a lot of success in uh, combat sport, in mixed martial arts. But the reason he had that success is because what I was talking about, he was able to fight boxers take them to the ground hold them there ground and pound submit them all that kind of stuff he is not a striker Ben Askren and he's in like if you YouTube him you you'll see right he he doesn't have that skill he doesn't have that footwork and if you don't grow up doing those things it's hard to change your body mechanics it's hard to get into that rhythm like you can absolutely don't get me wrong if you want to start later in life you can go and do it and you know, be semi-successful, but to go against somebody who's been doing it for, you know, since they were young and their muscle memory and their joints and things formed a certain way, it's going to be tough to compete with them. But Jake Paul calls him out. He has that name recognition, right? So people know Ben Askren is, he's a champion. He fought in the UFC. He had some success in other organizations. He's an Olympic caliber wrestler. He will, Jake Paul will win a boxing match against Ben Askren, no doubt. I don't think he'll knock him out because Ben Askren's a tough guy, especially if he gets later into later rounds, which is something that Jake Paul is not uh, familiar with. We'll see how right. he reacts to that pressure. But right. the biggest mistake he made with calling out Ben Askren is you have now made, like you've, you fought Nate Robinson. He was a basketball player. It was kind of just a, a gimme, just a show, right? You've now made that jump to these are actual athletes. So what's next, right? You go and you beat up Ben Askren. Who's next in line? Because you're not coming back to some regional circuit and fighting somebody out of my gym, right? They're not going to want to touch you. It's not worth, juice isn't worth the squeeze on that one. So now you're in a different level with actual athletes, professional athletes, 
So what's right. Jake Paul going to do next? He going to fight one of the Diaz brothers, right? He he's not ready for that. So that's the mistake he's made is that he has now made that jump to the next level, and I don't think that he's ready for that. Yeah, I mean, I think I I thought the same thing, Jay. I mean, I, I it was like, okay, you have two fights now. You're calling out McGregor. And then he ended up settling on Ben Askren. And I don't want to knock Ben Askren by saying settling on him, but in, in comparison with mm-hmm. McGregor. But then his brother Logan Paul calling out Mayweather, and they're actually going to fight. I mean, it's been delayed. We'll see what happens mm-hmm. with that. But, you know, it, it's just crazy. I, I think you're right. I, I, I think that's a great point that maybe he bit off a little bit more than he can chew. Because even if he gets through Askren, now he's going up the ranks maybe a little bit faster than he's been trained for, a little bit faster than he has the experience to deal with. So it'll be interesting, but I, I think there's a lot of people in the world, and he almost has like a McGregor aspect to him, mm-hmm. where he's so fucking cocky, dude. But like he's been, he's two and zero, so like he can be cocky now. But until he gets knocked out, you know, I, I think there'll be a lot of people that'll pay to watch him get beat up and and get him, yeah. you know. And, and I like your point too about him being a YouTuber. Yeah, he's a YouTuber. He's a, that's his job. But like you said, he he trains hard. Um, he's actually taking it seriously. I didn't know that about Rich Franklin. The only thing I knew about Rich Franklin was him, him getting his nose fucking bent sideways by, I think it was Anderson Silva's knee back in like the early <laughs> 2000s or whatever. But um, I wanted to, the last thing I wanted to talk about about the UFC and um, combat sports was, and you talked about it a little bit with CM Punk, but uh, Brock Lesnar. So Brock Lesnar, he, he's like probably the only guy that's gone from, I mean, he's definitely the only guy that's gone from professional wrestling to the UFC and had a pretty dominant, uh, I mean, he's been beat a couple of times, but he's been a champion in the UFC. He's had dominant victories. He's just a freak, man. This guy, like, so I, I wonder, like, what your what your thought is about a WWE guy coming over. I don't think there'll be anybody else that could do that. I mean, I, I know Dana White's taking shots at WWE in the past, how it's phony wrestling, but what UFC is now, outside of the what's in the ring, they are the WWE. They're the best at promoting the fights. They've got the, they've got the promos. They've got the guys hating each other. They've got the press conferences. They've got all the all the tools that WWE used to use and professional wrestling used to use when people actually like wanted to pay to see these fights, except their product is actually legitimate and there's an actual real fight going. So I wonder like what your thought is on Brock Lesnar. And I know he's still in WWE, but he's part-time. So he's kind of maybe going back to UFC. So what your thought was on, on Brock Lesnar and his legacy in the sport? Cause I, I think it's undeniable in my opinion. He, he He's a great UFC fighter. Well, I'll tell you, it, it's kind of funny you bring that up. Cause I remember whenever he first came over and then uh, was fighting Frank Mir, everybody, or at least my little circle was just like, this is nonsense. You know, he just comes over from the WWE gets streamlined to fight, uh, you know, for the title. It, it, when he won and it's a mixture of things like he is skilled. I mean, he's a, one of the core foundations of mixed martial arts is wrestling. And Brock Lesnar is a very, very talented wrestler, right? So it wasn't like he's just some nobody, some showman who came over. He has the resume, the collegiate resume, and then the, uh, I think he made a run uh, for the Olympic team. I don't know if that's, I don't know if he ever made the Olympic team, but I know that. I'm not sure if he made the Olympic team, but but on that, he's a two-time national champion, and he had a wrestling career at the University of Minnesota with 106 wins and five losses. So he's one of the best amateur wrestlers of all time. Yeah, so he has that background, that resume, right? So I agree with you that he, he's skilled, right? I mean, he, but the other thing about him is that he's just such a, a freak, a physical specimen that it was just such an awe to see him fight and manhandle people, 
right? So whenever he's fighting Shane Carwin and he's fighting Frank Mir, like these guys, when you look at heavyweights at the time, these were the cream of the crop. And these guys were strong. They were skilled. They looked invincible. And then Lesnar comes in and it was like they were little kids. Like they couldn't do anything to him. He just would run through people. He had such power in his striking, which was really surprising because you you would think as a wrestler, he probably wouldn't have that that skill, that background. But I mean, he did, right? He was just devastating to watch. But I don't like, I personally don't like Brock Lesnar. Just I didn't like the way that he conducted himself and, you know, what he didn't do anything to grow the sport except for things that were going to benefit him, right? But right. so when you talk about his legacy, I, I think it's mixed, right? You can't, like I said, you can't take away what people have done. He came in, he was the champ, he fought the best, right? They didn't do anything like they did with Kimbo Slice and they just gave him some some scrub. They put him in the in with the best and they say, you want to be part of this organization, you're going to have to fight like you're part of this organization. And he did, and he was successful. So the fact that he came over from WWE, I don't, I don't hold, I personally don't hold that against him because it's like I said, it's just that's where he came from, right? And he's a, a freak athlete with a good resume. Uh, but... Yeah, and he he's always said like he's always said about his WWE background and people knocking him for that like you know, he doesn't mind being in WWE because those guys they probably make especially Lesnar. He has the deal or I think he's the richest WWE wrestler of all time in terms of the money he makes in salary. Now, I know you can go back and say, "Well, Hulk Hogan wrestled in the 80s. The money wasn't the same as it is now in terms of inflation and all that stuff." But he was always saying like, "Hey, I wrestle like 8 times a year." Um I have a lot more longevity. WWE wrestlers and professional wrestlers in general have a lot more longevity, um, that potential in their career than a UFC fighter or a boxer does. Because, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm knocking wrestling because they are these guys are and people laugh at it, but they are putting their lives on the line every time they go out there. They're flying off fucking ladders. They're taking chair shots, not as much to the head anymore because of all the concussions and stuff like that that have been discovered in the last few years and all the head trauma studies that have happened, but. You know, it's not real fighting. It's predetermined. It's entertainment, obviously. Everybody knows that. But they're still putting their bodies on the line. I mean, it takes a lot to fall off a 25-foot steel cage and land on a fucking piece of plywood in the middle of the ring. Like, it's, it takes a lot. I'm not saying Lesnar does that, but I think he's always been very... Um, he's he's always defended his professional wrestling background, and it was remarkable to see, like, because he's probably... I think he's probably the only WWE wrestler that can go into the UFC and have success. I'm not saying he was the best, but... Well, I think that his background his background in the WWE is kind of what hurt him in the UFC and then with his legacy. Because like you said, right, they're, those guys in the WWE are putting their body on the line multiple times a week, month, whatever, however they do their shows. But from that, you know, they have to, and it's no secret, right, they have to repair their bodies because they're showmans, right? So right. he, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Brock Lesnar failed three uh, USADA tests, so like the the doping test. And I, I don't want to say that he's on steroids just because he was on steroids. Like I think a lot of the things that he popped for were just considered banned substances that he was probably using to rebuild his body that just took years and years and years of abuse. But once that like USADA pops you, it's devastating for your MMA career, but I think a lot of that stems from what he was going through with the WWE. Understood. I mean, in WWE, like more, especially in the WWE with Vince McMahon, he's so 
uh, big on like having guys that are look massive and are just in tip top shape. Like in UFC, I mean, people obviously the guy needs to be in shape. He needs to look like he's in shape. But in terms of WWE, they want the guys to look look the part. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they got to be jacked. They got to be diesel. They got to be cut. They got to be everything. So like in UFC, you could be. I mean, look at Chuck Liddell. The guy had a beer gut. I feel like for half his career, but he just knocked mm-hmm. everybody out. So like, you don't really need to be a physical specimen to be a star. I'm not saying in terms of fighting in your skill. I'm just saying in terms of be marketed as the guy. In yeah. in WWE, you can't really go out there looking like a slub. You know what I mean? You need to be. Mm-hmm. You need to have the muscles, and that's why I don't care what anybody says. People think that WWE has the wellness program, and they do. But those guys are all jacked up. They're juiced up on yeah. something. People don't just naturally look that big. And and, uh, and maybe Lesnar's like, not on steroids. It. I mean, that doesn't doping, bother me yeah. at all. If I'm paying you money to be a freak athlete and to jump off a 30-foot steel cage on a barbed wire, take all the steroids in the world, man. That doesn't bother <laughs> me at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad to get your, your uh, insight on that because I know you have a lot of knowledge in the area. So I yeah. think a lot of listeners will enjoy that. Um, if anybody wants to come on and debate me, uh, George St. Pierre is the best pound for pound mixed martial artist of all time and will always be of all time. <laughs> so if anybody wants to come on and debate oh, and they man, want to say John Jones words. or Khabib Nurmagomedov is better, I'll, I'll I'll fight you all day. Well, speaking of pissing dirty, John Jones, but um, <laughs> no, I wanted to pivot a little bit to what we talked about in the intro with our lacrosse, mm. uh, our lacrosse yep. careers, but the Premier Lacrosse League, yep. um, for those who don't know, there's been a couple of leagues, obviously, that have started up. There's the, the Major League Lacrosse. It's been around for a long time. They play in the summer. Um, it's not a, not a lot of publicity those guys get, but it's mainly the, the studs that are in college. They go to that league. Um, there's been the National Lacrosse League. I think that might still exist, Jay. I'm not sure. It, yeah. It's like the indoor box yeah, lacrosse. Indoor, yeah. It's a Canadian league. Uh, or a Canadian box lacrosse is kind of where it, where it started. They basically play at a hockey rink. Um, great sport, but... The Premier Lacrosse League was founded by Paul Rabel, who, in my opinion, and probably most people's opinion, is the best lacrosse player of all time, um, at least to this point. The dude's unbelievable. Uh, I think I saw a video of him one time, like, throwing a lacrosse ball across the Chesapeake Bay somehow. Like, one point yeah. in Baltimore, he threw it all the way across. Guy's unbelievable, but he started a company. Um, he's partnered up with uh, NBC Sports, which is incredible, like, to get – lacrosse pro lacrosse on nbc sports i think a lot of people that watch like college lacrosse enjoy it because it's on espn each year but um they've started a traveling league which i think is innovative yeah where they like the one thing i want to talk about i think that's great yeah they have they have guys like the whole the whole league basically there's six or eight teams i mean they're just a startup and they all get to one city they play like two or three games against each other, like a mini tournament, but it's all based on the schedule of the season. And they pick up and they move to the next city. And then it draws in fans because you're not like relying on a certain city to buy into lacrosse. You're relying on the city to come out and check out a bunch of lacrosse all-star players. And um, it's pretty interesting what they've done. So I kind of wanted to get your, your take on that because I think what Paul Rabel's doing and how Premier Lacrosse and how the Premier Lacrosse League has grown has been pretty incredible. I mean, these guys now are making thirty-five grand a year, which people scoff at because it's yeah. well. The, it's when they lacrosse. were in the MML, they were making eight grand. Yeah, so they're like, making they eight grand. grand. Like these guys are, they, you're basically you're a pro athlete, but you've got to have maybe one or two other jobs depending on what your your you know choice was in school and your major and stuff like that. Like, it's crazy. That'd be, so yeah, that'd be my favorite part when like you'd be watching a major league lacrosse game and it would 
you know, hey, oh, Joe Walters, University of Maryland, he's actually an accountant for Merrill Lynch, and he just flies in on Saturday, <laughs> plays a game, and then flies back. Like, it, it was insane how they treated yeah. those guys. But, and, like, the other thing that was what is nice about the PLL, or Premier Lacrosse League, is that the players own the rights to everything. So one of the things right. Paul Rabel was talking about, like, if you go on uh, LeBron James or Stephen Curry's Instagram – they have no highlights in their Instagram because the NBA owns those videos. But PLL, everything is given to the the players, their management team, uh, their families, and then they can go and market themselves however they want. So they're not limited by the like actual organization, which I think is just incredible for those guys because a lot of their money is going to come from uh, their marketing and their right. sponsorships because part of the $35,000 that they get, they get you know, incentives, health benefits, but they get stock options in the Premier Lacrosse League. So they need to, if they grow the organization and they grow themselves, they're going to see those returns, which I think is just, uh, as a idea, as a concept, I think is great. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's like, that's unheard of in terms of professional sports. And it's good that lacrosse is like the, the leader in that. And it'll be, I'm sure it'll be soon uh, when like the other leagues start to take notice of that and the players at least. And they'll want to make sure that they can get their hands on that because at the end of the day, I know the owners of these leagues, like the players, there would be no league. As I mentioned on the last episode with the NFL, there would be no league if it wasn't for the owners cutting mm-hmm. checks. But the players are the ones that make – like yeah. the people pay money to go see the players, so they deserve to get a little bit of money from that. I mean, lacrosse is one of those sports, and I know people scoff at it and people laugh at it. Whatever. I, fuck you if you laugh at it. But, mm-hmm. like – it's one of those games that if you don't understand it, it's like any other sport, right? Like I, yeah. I used to not really be into soccer very much, and I'm still not the biggest soccer fan, but I've learned more about it, so I watch more of it and I enjoy it now. Like lacrosse is, it's such a, it's such a fast game. It's like hockey. It's like basketball. It's got a little element of soccer in it. If you understand the game and you watch it or you go see it live, it's an enjoyable game, especially at a high level. Mm-hmm. Like if you go watch, like I know you and I have been to a couple of Final Fours in, in college. It's awesome to watch. I mean, if you're gonna go, like you're going to go watch a high school game or something, you might not enjoy it as much. But if you watch high level, especially like the Premier Lacrosse League where they have the top lacrosse players in the world, I think people will enjoy it. It's just like any other sport. you got to go see it live. you got to give it a chance. But I'm glad to see it's getting its due on NBCSN. And we'll see what happens because I know NBCSN is going away at the end of this year. So I don't know if they're going to pivot over to like USA Network or wherever they're going to go. But Paul Rabel, he's a great businessman. I think his brother actually yeah, runs his it with him. Helping. So, they got, um, I mean, they just signed uh, – the my fellow Penn State Nittany Lion, former New England Patriots wide receiver Chris Hogan, I saw that just signed with PLL. So like they're getting, but like if you run down, so I, this might not mean much to the listeners, but if you do follow lacrosse or if you've ever followed lacrosse, it wasn't like Paul. So Paul Rabel and you know Timmy doesn't mean that facetiously. He is the greatest of all time, and I think that he will remain that. But he didn't just go out and find some random scrubs playing on the street and try to make a competitor to the MML. Like Kyle Harrison, who is a Johns Hopkins legend, Matt Rambo from the University of Maryland, my boy Joe Walters, Brody Merrill, uh, who else? Matt, your boy Matt Donowski, Grant Amet, another Penn Stater. Like these guys are top of the top players in this sport, and they have all signed with the PLL. But I, it, it's just it's incredible to see that in such a short time, he created this league. The MLL and PLL now merged. So he took, he made a league to compete with Major League Lacrosse. And then within two years, 
now owns Major League Lacrosse. Like, it, it's incredible to see. Yeah, because they basically, the MLL basically came out and said, like, we don't want to do business with the PLL. Like, we want to be our own league, blah, 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 and running all their mouths and everything like that. And it's funny because Paul Rabel, like you said, two years later, he basically owns them and they've absolved the MLL. So it's crazy. Um, so um, a continued continued success to the Premier Lacrosse League. I'll be watching. They're on in the summertime on NBCSN for anybody that's interested. And, man, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was an absolute joy to have you. I think people are really going to enjoy this interview. Um, I had a blast, so I appreciate it. Uh, let me know whenever you drop your podcast. I'd love to come through and be a guest and chop it up, man. Appreciate you. A shout-out to JTL, man. What a blast that was. Him and I go way back, and I genuinely learned a lot during that interview regarding MMA, and I just laugh at how I never thought about it before, but I've got a lot of friends who just have a mutual disdain for craft beers. <laughs> like It's incredible. Uh, but honestly, I can't lie. That Dale's Pale Ale was pretty solid. Um, I did find out that the Oscar Brews Brewery, uh, which makes Dale's Pale Ale, um, originated in Colorado. So that totally makes sense to me. Coors Light, Colorado, Dale's Pale Ale, Colorado, just a quality beer and a quality place to brew beer. So, hey, and speaking of Colorado, I have to address this ridiculous rumor. I hate that I have to talk about it, but Darren Drager's up to his old tricks again. Um, he's seriously becoming like the Skip Bayless of, of hockey. I know he's a respected reporter. He's, he's had a lot of scoops, but man, this is just complete and utter bullshit. Um, Darren Dreger has reported, as I mentioned, that the Penguins will have a conversation if this season doesn't go well with their main stars, Crosby, Malkin, and Latang, as, as well as ownership in uh, upper-level management. They'll discuss the future of the team, the direction of the team, you know, etc. But now Darren Dreger is saying that it's possible that Sidney Crosby gets traded this offseason or he asks for a trade. Neither one of those I could see happening. If you know anything about Sid or you followed him at all, he does not have the personality to demand a trade from the team that drafted him. He has such a close relationship with Mario Lemieux. Mario Lemieux has come out time and time and time again and said the biggest regret the Penguins organization has in their history was having to let Yarmir Yager go for a bag of pucks, essentially, for what the trade they got for him. Because they couldn't afford to pay him. Uh, the times were tough with the Penguins going through bankruptcy and trouble with the city and trying to get a new arena and all that. Uh, we can dive into that in another episode. But all that stuff going on, the last thing they wanted to do was get rid of their star player, Yarmir Yager, in his prime, the captain of the team. They really got nothing for him, as I mentioned. And and uh, Lemieux has vowed to never let that happen again where you trade a star because you really aren't going to get a lot back for him. Um, like who are you going to get to replace Crosby that's better than Crosby unless you're totally rebuilding? But are you going to totally rebuild with a 33-year-old Crosby and a couple decent young studs on the team? I don't think so. Um, but Darren Drager's at it again, as I mentioned. He's mentioned that uh, Colorado, the Colorado Avalanche, make a lot of sense for a trade uh, partner with the Penguins to trade Crosby to Colorado to unite him with his best buddy and uh, Nathan McKinnon. They're both from the same hometown in Canada, Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia. They skate together in the summer. I mean, I love McKinnon, and it would be awesome to watch those two play. I just There's no chance that Crosby goes. I don't think there's any chance that Malkin goes. I think the one piece of the core that will potentially go and probably should go at this point is Chris Letang. Um, but I, there's no way. And, and from Colorado's perspective, they've been so bad for so long. Like, 
and they've stockpiled draft picks. Joe Sackick has done a phenomenal job as general manager. Um, they have an unbelievable management team over there. Jared Bednar, great coach. Uh, he won a Calder Cup. Um, I'm not sure if it's the Calder Cup. He, he won the ECHL trophy. I'm sorry. Um, in Erie, he's a great coach. And I think they've got all the pieces. I mean, they're 400 to 1. They were the Stanley Cup favorite this year. We'll see how it goes. I mean, this season's up in the air, and they, they've been playing pretty well. They've dealt with some injuries, but like, I love Sidney Crosby. I mean, he's my favorite player. He's unbelievable. I know he's going to retire a Penguin, but just hypothetically speaking, if he does entertain getting traded, why would Colorado want Crosby? I mean, you're going to get his leadership, obviously. You're going to get his experience. Um, you're going to get his skill level, obviously. But they're center heavy already. They've got Gabe Landeskog. They've got McKinnon, number one. That's the first point. Number two, like you're probably going to have to give up some of those prospects. The Penguins aren't going to just deal Crosby. He's got contract control. He's at a favorable cap hit. He only makes $8.7 million a year, which is cheap because he's got such OCD. He wants $8.787787 um, as a salary. So, um, I mean, you're really getting the benefit of having that player, but you're going to have to give up a lot if you're Colorado, and I'm not sure they really need to. I don't think they really need Crosby. As I mentioned, they're already the Stanley Cup favorites. They've got young studs and Miko Rantanen, and McKinnon and Landis Cog, they've got on the back end, they've got Bo Byram, they've got uh, Kale McCarr. I mean, they're loaded. The, the one place they probably need help is in goal. Um, so I just don't see how it happens. I don't even know why this is a story. I see blogs online. Um, I see like prominent media outlets in Canada and Sportsnet and TSN and stuff reporting this. Like this is not news. This is never going to happen. Um, I, have n- I have no doubt in my mind Sidney Crosby will retire a Pittsburgh Penguin. Um, so I don't even know why we're entertaining it, but I saw it and I figured, you know, I, I figured I should address it, but that's my, that's my statement. Um, you can hold me to it if it happens, but I see no chance in hell as Vince McMahon would say that this happens. Um, another interesting note on Crosby is when, uh, general manager, Jim Rutherford, um, stepped down and the Penguins were in the search for a general manager, uh, prior to hiring Ron Hextall and, and uh, Brian Burke. Montreal, Mark Bergevin, the general manager for Montreal, he used to be a Pittsburgh Penguin. Um, guys, jacked man. He he's awesome. What a what a character he is. But they inquired about the status of Sidney Crosby to potentially have a trade for uh, Crosby to go to Montreal. Now, if Crosby were to ever leave, he would definitely go to a contender. Um, I don't think he would go play for like Ottawa or somebody like that. Or you know, if, if he's forced to leave or he wants to leave or the Penguins decide, hey, we're tearing everything down, we're rebuilding. Um, he wouldn't go anywhere. He's got a full no move clause. He wouldn't go anywhere but a contender. So Montreal, they're up and coming. That was his favorite childhood team. Um, but again, this is all a moot point because it's never going to happen. Um, there's no chance this happens. Um, some other news from around the league. I just wanted to talk about the standings a little bit. Um, Toronto's still absolutely buzzing. They're 11 wins, three losses, and two overtime points in 16 games. They're the best team in the league in terms of points. Um, although last night they did blow a 5-1 lead to the lowly Senators at home. Uh, one of the worst third periods I've ever seen a team play. Um, I had that game on NHL TV and Matthews and Marner and Tavares and Joe Thornton came back. They were all buzzing, playing well. Um, tough night for Freddie Anderson in goal. I mean, the Leafs, that's their Achilles heel is their defense. Like they, they, they just, they play run and gun all the time. They, they play the same style of game constantly, no matter what the score is. So like last night you saw it, they were up five to one. Like all you have to do is lock down the D. You don't need any more goals. If you get a chance, you take it, but you don't take any unnecessary risks. What do they do? They blow the lead. They lose in overtime. Just an unacceptable loss. I'm sure uh, Canadian media has been all over them today because anytime they lose, especially in that fashion, I'm sure it's hell to be a uh, Leaf player. 
um, in the locker room with the media. Uh, Boston, they're always pretty good, but they're 10 wins, two losses, and two overtime points in 14 games. Um, Vegas is 10 wins, two losses, and one uh, overtime point. In 13 games, they have the best per- uh, points percentage in the league. So keep that in mind in case of COVID, if these teams – uh, can't all play the same number of games. It's been rumored that they might go off points percentage. So that's the most fair way to determine the standings. So uh, Vegas right now with the best points percentage in the league. Um, and Tampa, I mean, Tampa, they won the Stanley Cup last year. Unbelievable team, pretty much the same unit, although they're missing their best player, Nikita Kucherov, and Steven Stamkos is actually down. I think he's on the COVID protocol list, um, their captain. But they're 10 wins, three losses, and uh, one overtime point in 14 games so they're right up there with those teams I mean that's the cream of the crop of the league and one of the surprise teams in the league is the Florida Panthers so like whenever you think about elite teams in the NHL you rarely think about the Florida Panthers unless you're thinking 1996 I think when they made the Stanley Cup final but ever since then they've been pretty much brutal a couple playoff appearances here and there but pretty much a doormat for the rest of the east um but this year, they've been a surprise. Initially, they had that Keith Yandel drama we talked about on one of the earlier episodes where he's got that Ironman streak going and they wanted to bench him. Um, they didn't think he, he would fit. He fits in their system anymore, and it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, including some people on his team and his teammates. But they're playing well, and they're nine wins, two losses, and two overtime points. So look out for them in the Central Division. I mean, they've been getting poor goaltending. They've got Sergei Bobrovsky, um, a top free agent they signed a couple years ago. He's making 10 sheets a year. And he's playing like complete dog shit. They've got uh, Chris Dreger, the backup, just kind of a no-name guy coming out of nowhere, uh, playing really well and almost taking the reins from Bobrovsky. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Sergei Bobrovsky um, in the future because he's not holding up his end of the bargain. He's playing like shit, as I mentioned. Um, and if they could just get some good, consistent goaltending from their top guy, they're a real threat in that central division and a real threat uh, to potentially make a run here in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So before we get into Pittsburgh, i got to take a sip of beer here. The Pittsburgh Penguins, they're kind of just puttering a little bit, uh, right around 500. Um, they're seven wins, six losses, and one overtime point. Um, they beat the Caps three times this year so far, but they just lost their most recent game to them and played one of the worst games they played um, so far. I wanted to point out that earlier this week in one of the games against the Capitals, it was the first game of the season where the Pittsburgh Penguins actually carried a lead into the third period. Like, that's remarkable. I mean, they're in their... 13th game at the time and they're carrying a lead into the third period for the first time on top of that in the same game they scored their first power play goal in the last eight games after going over their previous 20 power plays during that span and they also had the first two goal lead of the season so they've either been trailing tied or only up one this entire season until that 13th game against the capitals Uh, ultimately held on got the 6-3 victory with two empty net goals uh, but like I mentioned, their last game, they got beat 3-1 to one by the Capitals. So Capitals finally uh, draw blood against the Penguins, and, and the Penguins are 3-1 and one against them. So that's one of the top teams in, in that division. So um, a, a good test for the Penguins, but they're really just not playing well enough. I mean, they're finally starting to get healthy. Um, their goaltending has been eh, decent. Uh, it's been better, I should say. It was really poor to start the season. Um, but it's picked up recently a little bit and and their special teams, they really need to get that clicking. Their penalty kill is not very good. It's right in the middle of the league in terms of the, um, penalty kill percentage, their success rate on killing penalties, their power play. As I mentioned, they were 0 for 20, uh, before, uh, I'm not sure exactly what they were in their last game, but I mean, that's just not getting the job done with 
Crosby and Malkin and Gensel and Latang and um, you know Zucker, whoever else is out there on the line. It's just unacceptable to only click at that rate. Um, they're one of the bottom teams in the league in terms of power play. Um, Evgeny Malkin still really struggling. Um, he's shown shown signs of life where he's playing well. He's really engaged, but then he has a bonehead play where you know he just he just he's fighting the puck right now. He's not getting things to go his way. Not seeing the bounces. Not seeing the puck tickle the twine. And I think it really is messing with him mentally um, in terms of his game. So the Penguins, if they have any interest in trying to make a run in the playoffs or even make the playoffs, they really got to get Malkin going. Um, probably the the brightest spot for the Penguins right now is Brian Rust. That guy's just a born winner, man. Big game Rust. Um, he always plays well. Um, just he's very consistent. He can play on any line, first through fourth line. He can check. Um, he can penalty kill. He can play power play. Um, he was named the NHL's second star of the week. So every week the NHL picks three players from around the league that had great weeks uh, based on stats and team victories and stuff. So Brian Rust was the NHL's second star of the week this past week, and he's been a huge boost to that Sidney Crosby, Jake Gensel line, and they're really clicking on all cylinders right now. So if they can get the rest of the team to kind of pick up the slack and get the power play going, I know it's a lot to get the rest of the team to pick up some slack, get Malkin going, get the power play going, get the penalty kill going, get their goaltending going. <laughs> Seems like a lot, but if there's any team that can do it, I think it's the Penguins. They've always uh, been able to rally um, in past years, so I'm never going to count them out. Um, and scoring is just up this year in the NHL all over. Um, Austin Matthews, as I mentioned before, he's got 13 goals now in 15 games. Uh, Connor McDavid with 30 points. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl, his teammate right behind him with 26 points. We talked about their uh, potential points and, and the trajectory those guys are on in terms of their production this season on the last episode. But just from a league perspective overall, scoring is up massively this year. Um, defensive play and goaltending is really down. So league-wide, you know, each person that's screaming at their TV, all the fans screaming at their TV that their goalies stink or their team stinks, peep these stats. The average save percentage in the NHL this year is .906. So 90.6% of the shots taken on goal are saved. That's the worst save percentage in the NHL since 2006-2007 when it was 90.5%. So just a hair off that. So... I don't know if we'll see this trend continue, but it seems like I don't know if, whether it was goalies not being able to um, get proper training. I know there was a lot of uh, questions around when the season was actually going to start. Was there going to be a camp? There was a short camp. Maybe guys came into camp maybe a little bit out of shape, a little bit rusty, um, not on their training regimen, maybe not on their nutrition, not getting the work they would normally get in the offseason. But it's really showing right now because there's a lot of bonehead plays. Um, out there defensively, guys just way out of position, teams out of sorts a little bit. I mean, they're still early in the season, but it's a little bit difficult to understand from a professional hockey perspective, you know, 13, 14, 15 games into the season, how they're making some of these fundamental mistakes. Uh, from a from a standpoint of me watching all the games, you know, Chris Letang has got to be leading the pack in that as far as the league goes and fundamental mistakes. But, you know, that's uh, that's a conversation for a different day. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, something to keep an eye on because these numbers will continue to pile up on the stat sheet for the players that I mentioned and some other players across the league that, you know, might not be normal. You know, you wouldn't normally see these uh, type of numbers. And I would love to see guys that have some inflated numbers, maybe some lesser guys that are getting big time goals and big time points, get a big ticket this summer um, and, and cash in on a big contract and get that cake. And, and speaking of cake, the Rambling Brews podcast would like to wish a happy birthday to Yarmir Yager, the legend, who turned 49 this week and is still playing, believe it or not, and producing at a very high level in the Czech Republic. He's playing for a team he owns. Now, I don't exactly know the name of the team he plays for, but I know he's still playing. 
Uh, just imagine if that guy would have been able to continue playing in um, the NHL. I know not in the prime of his career, but in his 30s, he went over and he played in friggin' Siberia for crying out loud. I mean, that guy, he chases the money. He's an absolute legend. Um, he, his numbers and his points and his goals and his games played would all be up there near the very top. They're already at the, the top, but they might be at the top of the NHL uh, record books if he would have stayed in the NHL his entire career. Um, I just I, I pray that that man comes home to Pittsburgh one day, uh, signs a one-day contract, retires as a Pittsburgh Penguin, uh, shakes hands with Mario Lemieux. Not that there's any bad blood, but kind of buries the hatchet whenever the Penguins were trying to bring him back um, earlier in the decade. And he ended up signing with Philadelphia, which is like a big no-no for Penguins fans in the organization. I think it rubbed Mario and, and some people within the organization the wrong way. Um, buries that hatchet, and one day we see 68 Yarmir Yager in the rafters at PPG Paints Arena. Um, that needs to happen, and I think it will happen. And I've seen where Phil Bork, um, the Penguins radio play-by-play guy, and uh, he played for the team for a long time. He's a big part of the organization, friends with Mario and friends with everybody in the organization. Uh, he's been trying to kind of smooth it over and get in touch with Yarmir Yager and kind of get him a chance to talk to Lemieux. I don't know if they've actually talked to each other yet, um, but I really hope it happens, and the Penguins fans uh, deserve to see it happen. He's a Penguins great. He was one of the best players in the league at the time when he was a Penguin. Um, still one of the best players in the world. Unbelievable what he's doing at age 49, and he's showing no sl- no signs of slowing down. So more power to Yager. Hey, let's take a sip of beer for Yags. The funniest part about Yager is like all those guys, they call him the traveling Yagers. Um, all those fans that because Yager's played for like nine teams in the league um, and they all dress up and they go to like a lot of his games when he was playing in the NHL they would all go to like a couple road games he was playing in um, or even a couple home games and they're all dressed as Yager they got the mullet or uh, whenever he was playing for some teams like Philadelphia he had shorter hair they have a guy with short hair wearing the Philly jersey it's it's hilarious and they've got pictures online of him uh, meeting up with them after the games and just an absolute beauty. I mean, I've read stories where the guy, he's 49 years old now, but he still gets up at like 2 in the morning, uh, puts ankle weights on, runs. He's working out. He's got a key to the facility. He had, a, I think he had a key to the facility, um, the practice facility, whenever he was in the NHL, and he would wake up the trainers um, early. You know, it, it, Even if they were on the road, he'd wake them up at 2 a.m., go to the hotel gym or some gym in town and work out. Um, the guy's just an absolute savage. Uh, just an awesome personality. So again, hope he comes back to Pittsburgh and everything's all good because it really drove me crazy when the Penguins fans were booing him all those years, especially before he went to Philadelphia where they were booing him for leaving when they didn't know the story. As I mentioned um, earlier in the episode, they didn't know the story that the Penguins couldn't afford to pay him his salary. So they had to move. He didn't necessarily demand a trade, but they were going to unload everybody on the team. They basically, the ownership basically came to the locker room and said like, we're getting rid of everybody. We can't afford to pay these guys. Um, and it really it really uh, pissed me off that people would boo Yager. It always drove me nuts. So uh, I hope to see him get his due one day. And uh, some other anniversaries from this week, um, a somber one here. One man I've got to pay my respects to in honor of the Daytona 500 NASCAR race that took place this past weekend. Um, today, February 18th, marks 20 years since the tragic accident that took Dale Earnhardt's life in the Daytona 500 uh, back in 2001. Um, just a horrifying accident. Um, I remember being a kid and the whole sports world was in shock and disbelief, the whole world in general. It was just a very sad time. And um, So we're going to have a moment of silence here uh, for three seconds out of respect to the intimidator, Mr. Earnhardt.
and a swig of beer for uh, the Intimidator as well. And on a much happier note, uh, to end this episode here, seven years ago today, this week, TJ Oshie pretty much single-handedly beat the Russians in the preliminary round-robin game in the Sochi Olympics in 2014 uh, with his incredible shootout performance. Uh, I think he went five or I think he went six or seven times and scored four or five goals. Just um, an unbelievable performance. The the Russians were going back and forth with the Americans. They were sending out Kovalchuk. They were sending out Malkin. They were sending out Datsuk. Uh, what were the Americans doing? They were sending out TJ Oshie, the shootout king. Um, I remember getting up at 7 a.m. with the family and somebody's coming over to watch those games. We were drinking beer at 7 a.m., uh, watching the U.S. play um, in all their games, but I specifically remember that one against Russia. It's one of the most um, amazing games in USA hockey history, just an absolute electric show. Um, I think a lot of people finally found out who T.J. Oshie was at that point. I mean, from a mainstream sports perspective. Like, he was in St. Louis a lot. This was before he was a Washington Capitol. He was in St. Louis um, – they were, they were decent, but they were kind of underachieving team, and they're in the West, so they're not necessarily shown a lot. Um, we mentioned on previous episodes how the NHL doesn't really market um, a lot of teams that aren't on the East Coast. So, you know, I think a lot of people got to see who he was, and, and it was very similar to uh, Jonathan Taves, who, it, for those who don't know, I think it was 2006 or 2007 in the World Juniors Tournament in the gold medal game. He did something very similar where he went in the shootout um, – you know, time and time and time again and kept finding different ways to score and ultimately led to Canada winning the gold medal. So what an unbelievable feeling that would be. Um, as far as Oshie, he's an absolute scumbag on the ice. I hate to play against him, um, but he's the kind of guy that you'd love to have on your team. You'd love to see him rocking the USA flag on his sweater for the Olympics. So uh, again, another sip of beer for TJ Oshie and the USA hockey team. And speaking of the Olympics... We're about one year away from the 2022 Olympic Games, and I'm starting the campaign now. I'm starting it now. I've seen some people online talking about it. He's, you know, he's on the fringe a little bit. Bullshit. I'm starting the campaign now to have Jake Gensel, the Pittsburgh Penguins left winger, on Team USA. We'll go over this in the future as the Olympics draw near, but man, these rosters and these nations are putting together. This might be the best hockey tournament of all time, and I cannot wait for that. That's a year away. I wish it was tomorrow, but we'll talk about that in the future. On that note, pick you up some cold beers. Have a tremendous weekend. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around. Here. Could be holding you tonight. I could quit doing wrong and start doing right. You don't about what I think Think I'll just stay here and drink Hey, putting you down won't square the deal At least you know the way I feel Hey, take all the money in the bank Think I'd just stay here and drink Hey, listen close and you can hear That loud jukebox playing in my ear Ain't no woman gonna change the way I think I think I'd just stay here and drink Yes, sir
Just stay here and drain. 